This morning's reading will come from Mark chapter 8, 1, 1 through 26. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 1073. Hear the word of God. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called, the, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and, and, they on, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him, home to, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Church family, we are, um, Jess and I, needing your prayer because we are in the throes of potty training right now with Desmond. And uh, for all of you that have children, uh, maybe even grandchildren, um, life is not a lot of fun as it concerns potty training. Can I get a witness? I mean, somebody, somebody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, 
what we've learned, or, and really it's Jess more than me because I, I'm, I'm not with him as often, but what we've learned is that you set a 30-minute timer, right, and you ask him every 30 minutes, buddy, need to go to the bathroom, and whether he says yes or no, you take him anyways, and, um, and, and we've, we have all these devices that we've come up with to try to help him with like sticker charts uh, for when there's a successful visit and M&Ms as a reward when there's a successful visit. Why do you do all those things? I mean, even if it's inconvenient, like yesterday out working in the, in the shop behind our house and he's out there playing in the sandbox and every 30 minutes you have to ask him, hey, buddy, do we, uh, why do you do that? Well, it's because repetition is a great teacher. Repetition is an effective teacher. And uh, you, you, you may know this from experience as well. Cramming for a test in school, you, uh, you study your note cards over and over and over, your vocabulary words or your spelling words. You write them over and over and over so that you can memorize them because repetition is an effective teacher. It helps us. My uh, first baptism, we had a baptism last Sunday, and it was, it was exciting. I enjoyed getting to, to, to see that uh, it, with our church family. My first one, though, was quite different. It was, uh, it was a very nervous experience for me. I was, I was, I was incredibly nervous. There were, there were going to be 750 people there in attendance, and uh, it was my first baptism. And so I was practicing in my, my head that line, I baptize you, my sister. Her name was uh, Peyton Blanchard. I baptize you, my sister, Peyton Blanchard, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. I practiced that over and over and over and over because I didn't, I didn't want to mess this up. And, uh, and I practiced it, and I practiced it. And then I got up there in front of all those people, and I looked out, and my heart stops, and I go, I baptize you, my sister, Baton Planchard. <laughs> so completely messed her name up. So what do I do? I just keep going like it never happened. Uh, I didn't say anything wrong. You know, I kind of shook it off like nothing happened. Repetition is an effective teacher. But my point is, as good a teacher as repetition is, we often get things wrong the second time and third time and tenth time and even a hundredth time that we practice or repeat something. We often still forget. We often still get it wrong. We need some intentional repetition, and this morning in the book of Mark, we get that. Mark is intentionally giving us some repetition so that we can lodge in our hearts a certain truth. For these disciples, Jesus was doing something repetitiously so that they would lodge something into their heart. Also note this morning, church family, we're at a pivotal moment in the book of Mark. If Mark were a play, we would be getting to the end of Act 1. And as Act 1 concludes, there's this climax. There's this huge uh, major point, this pinnacle in this story that we're about to get to. We're not going to get to it today either, by the way. It'll be next, well, actually next Sunday is Michael. So it'll be the next Sunday um, that, we, that we preach, uh, the 25th, that we get to it. And that moment is Peter's confession, rightly, that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we're getting to. That's, that's the major climax of Act 1, the transition to Act 2. But remember, Mark is writing to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God's Messiah. He's the one that's come to save his people from their sins. And in and Peter's confession, we see the disciples, they, they get that. They see him as the Christ. And so to this point, we see the disciples, they're in their faith. I mean, they're in faith following Christ. They've given him their lives. They're following him, yet they're, fully, uh, they're not fully comprehending who he is and why he came. They trust that there's something special with Jesus. He's the Messiah. They acknowledge that, but they're, they're not getting the details of his ministry and his mission. And, uh, and to this point, we've seen that. And, and this morning, we have a series of events um, that, that build up to that monumental confession. And so these events are a mirror image. Again, I told you there's some repetition here. These events, this sequence of events, are a mirror image of things that have happened earlier in Mark's gospel. 
Um, And I believe they happen in history in this way. I believe we're reading history when we read Mark's gospel. It actually happened in history. But I think Mark is also uh, writing it, pinning it in this intentional order to give us some symmetry, some repetition that teaches us something about discipleship. Something about what Jesus was doing with his disciples. Uh, in that, that, so this was the order that they, these events occurred. And so repetition is vital to growth. Remembering what the Lord has done for us. Uh, repeating the, the disciplines of grace. Doing those things. Help us to trust him in the future. Seeing trials and then God's grace and provision in the midst of a trial helps us to trust him in the future. And so real quickly, we won't spend a lot of time here, but notice this repetition. In in chapter 6 and 7, which we studied uh, a few months back, and then in chapter 8 today, we see this this mirror, this this repetition. You see a a feeding miracle where Jesus feeds a multitude. You see a, a boat trip immediately following. You see a conversation with the religious elite of the day, a confrontation between uh, the religious leaders and Jesus. You see a conversation about bread. Uh, You see a miraculous healing where Jesus heals somebody, performs a miracle in in their presence. And then you see this major confession about Christ. Each one of these things are in chapter six and seven, and they're in chapter eight today. And so let's walk through the first part of chapter eight. Again, setting the stage for uh, building up to that major confession from Peter in verse 29 that we'll get to in a couple weeks. So four points this morning, four things to observe in the text, uh, all dealing with sight. I believe either physical or spiritual or both uh, here because it's in seeing It's in seeing spiritually that Peter's able to confess Jesus is the Christ. It's in our spiritual seeing. It's when God gives us eyes to see that you and I are able to confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And so let's look this morning for observations about sight in these verses we've heard. Number one, uh, we see a dilemma or where we may see a dilemma, Jesus sees a divine opportunity. You see this in the first 10 verses. And again, you've heard the text already. Uh, you may have been thinking as David was reading, uh, am I having some deja vu? I feel like we just studied uh, this story, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus multiplying fish and bread. And critics have said all along, skeptics of the Bible have said, uh, that this is actually a mistake, that there were not two feeding stories, two miraculous feedings that happened in the life of Christ. Um, that Mark has his stories confused, that Mark's actually just telling the same story twice, either because he forgot that he already wrote it or uh, he's, he's just given a different version of it, um, because critics, skeptics would say that if we can discredit the validity of this account, that there is repetition, that Mark's just uh, careless in his recording of the gospel, then we can uh, demonstrate the tr- uh, that the Bible's not trustworthy. Uh, I think that we do have indeed two feeding miracles. I believe that Mark is giving us history. Just as Jesus uh, did these two miracles, he's recording them for us. And so watch this in the, in the details. It's, it's clearly two different events because of the differing details. Watch. I mean, the number of people. In the first account in, chapters, in, the, in the earlier chapters that we read, you see uh, 5,000 individuals were fed. This time it's 4,000. You see the time that they spent with Jesus. Earlier, it was only one day. And now here in this account in chapter 8, they spent three days with Jesus. The season of this event in in the earlier uh, account was was in springtime. Remember, Jesus tells them to sit down on the specifically green grass. Here, there uh, is no no time specified. There's no mention of season or even hints that would would give us a clue. 
Notice the prayers. In, in the earlier event with the 5,000, Jesus prays once for the meal. Here, it mentions that Jesus specifically prays twice. And notice also that the offering, was, uh, the offering that was multiplied with the 5,000, it was five loaves and two fish. Here, it's seven loaves and a few small fish. Notice the cleanup afterwards. Before, it was 12 baskets of leftovers. This time, it's seven baskets of leftovers. Notice that it's two groups of people. Earlier, it was a a particularly Jewish audience that had traveled with him to the other side of the lake, a desolate place to hear and uh, see his teaching. And here, it's a Gentile audience in in the region of the Decapolis, a primarily Gentile audience. But the biggest evidence, I think the, the, the greatest proof that this is two separate miracles is that Jesus himself refers back to the previous miracle in the, in the feeding of the 4,000. He talks about the other one. And so I think critics and skeptics are absolutely wrong when they say that this is a mistake, that Mark's just recording the same event twice. So what do we learn from this second feeding miracle? Well, quickly, as we walk through uh, this text, we see some, some observations in Jesus' ministry. We see he cares about people's needs. Look at verses 1 through 3. And again, the first feeding miracle, Mark says Jesus had compassion on them, and so he acted compassionately towards them. Here, Jesus himself identifies that he has compassion. Look at verses 1 through 3. And in those days, when a great, again, a great crowd had gathered... And they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I mean, think about the details here as Jesus is in the midst of teaching. Think about what Jesus is able to observe in the crowd. That they've been with him for three days and they've had nothing to eat that entire time. And so that they're, they're, they're so hungry, he's observing in their faces, in their demeanors. They're so hungry that they, they would be to the point of fainting if they tried to go home. And then thirdly, that, that, that he's observed, at least through conversation and just knowledge of who they are because he's God, the distance that some of them have traveled. All of this information he's gathered about this crowd, he's uh, deduced from this crowd, all the, uh, all the while teaching, performing miracles, demonstrating that he's the son of God. What incredible attention to the details of their life. That in the midst of doing ministry, he's, he's focused on them and their particular needs. Even the folks that are not coming to him for healing, he knows about them. He knows where they're at. He knows their circumstances. He saw their need and he cared. Just like he sees your need and he cares for you. He knows right where you're at, right now, and he cares for you. Are we like that? Does that characterize us as as believers, as followers of Christ, that we see need around us, that that every day, even at our workplace or at school or wherever we find ourselves in our neighborhoods, that we see need around us, that we can can step out of our busyness and our hectic schedules to say, I see that neighbor that, that has needs that need to be met. Jesus had compassion like that. But if you continue, he doesn't just have compassion towards their need. He does something about their need. He calls the disciples to himself. He huddles them up, if you will. And he shares his concern. I have compassion on these people because they're, they're hungry. They've been with me three days and they've not eaten. And then in verse 4, we get the disciples' response. His disciples answered him. How can one feed these people with uh, bread here in this desolate place? Now, to be clear, church family, when uh, Jesus performed the first miracle of the feeding, the disciples didn't believe. They had no clue what Jesus could do. They come to him, I mean, almost even questioning, is, is, is this even possible? But they've seen him now do a miracle. They've seen him feed the masses. And so here, it's, it's not so much a question of, of doubt. 
as it is of, of, of their, their bad location and their lack of resources. The implication here from the disciples, Jesus, we can do nothing. We have no ability to do anything of ourselves, but we know you can. We know you're their only hope. We know that you can do something for their situation. And upon this question or this implied statement, Jesus moves into action and works in their midst. Look at uh, verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said uh, that these also should be set before them. And some, some of you some of you have probably zoned out at this point in the sermon. You're, you're, you're thinking, well, I've been here before. This is a rerun today, right? Like, like sitting there on the couch watching uh, the Andy Griffith show. You're like, well, I was kind of wanting to take a nap anyways. And since this is a rerun, this is the one where Barney locks himself in the jail. I can just kick the feet up on my recliner and zone out. This is a rerun. I've seen this one. I know what happens. But friends, not the case with Jesus. Don't just zone out because you think it's a rerun. We need the reruns. We need to hear this. We need to see what Christ is doing for these people, that he loved them and he cared for them, and his care and compassion that he had towards them led to action. Real belief, real conviction, real compassion leads to action. He does something for them in their situation. How many times, church family, has God provided for us? Have we we seen him at work and and, and still have trouble trusting him or doubting his ability to provide for us in the future, even though we've seen him do it in the past? We need the reruns. We need to see his grace at work in our lives daily and recognize his sovereign control over our lives and his provision for us. So Jesus does something for them. He, He works in their midst to feed them. And then continue... Verses 8 through 10, he fully satisfies them. He doesn't just have compassion on them and then do something for them, but he completely satisfies them. Look at verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken, the, the broken pieces left over, seven full baskets, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthu. They ate and were filled Text says they ate and were filled. Seven large baskets, not twelve like the first miracle, were left over. And now Jesus could send them on their way. He satisfies all who follow him. And I've been thinking about that, even just that thought. And it was that simple statement in verse eight. And they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. And as I've been thinking about that, you know what comes to my mind? Elastic pants. <laughs> Some of you had dozed off. Elastic pants. And I, you can ask Jess, when I get home today or any day of the week, the first thing I do is give her and Desmond a hug and a kiss, and then I head to my closet where I put on my comfy pants. Why do I do that? And you, Kirk and Tammy can vouch as well that I lived with them for five months. If I'm at home, I have on my comfy pants. Why? Because they're stretchy and they feel good and they're comfortable to lounge around in. Our souls are kind of like that. Our, our souls are kind of like elastic pants. Now, I know you're thinking, this is great. Some preachers quote really pithy and, and deep thoughts so that I can tweet. And, you know, maybe the, the church fathers or the Puritans, just really deep stuff. And my pastor's up here talking about stretchy pants. Uh, but seriously, our, our souls are, are like that, right? The more we eat, the more they expand, and then the more that we can eat next time. They're, they're elastic, Listen, none of us have have eaten so much spiritually of Christ. None of us have tasted and seen Christ so much that he wouldn't give us any more. 
That's the beauty of, of, of having elastic souls, if you will, that the more we eat, the more we taste and feed on Christ, the more he satisfies and the more he gives us. There's no such thing, church family, as spiritual gluttony. You can eat and taste of Christ all you want. And, and, and friend, you won't ever say, well, man, I've had enough of that. I, I wish I could taste something different. No, friends, you'll just come back wanting more because he completely satisfies and nothing satisfies like Christ. Man, that we would have a hunger for Christ that only he could satisfy. That we would eat and eat and eat of Christ and his goodness, of his grace towards us. Christ here in the text, it says they ate and they were satisfied. Jesus is saying to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And just as I can provide physical food for you, I can multiply food for you that will fill you to the point there's leftovers. That's nothing compared to what I can do for you spiritually. Taste and see that he is good. He is the bread of life that fills us. Second point that we see about sight in the text. Unbelievers insist upon seeing a sign, but they reject it when it comes. Unbelievers insist on seeing a sign, but reject it when it comes. Look at this in verses 11 through 13. So with no hesitation, Mark immediately points to another conflict that comes up with the religious leaders of the day. I mean, and this is, this is something that's happened over and over again. Now, seven times in Mark's gospel have the religious elite, either the scribes or the Pharisees or the different, different elders from the synagogue, have, have approached Christ with some kind of allegation against him, trying to trip him up or trap him so that they can accuse him. It's sort of like a, a scratched record. You know what I'm talking about. If you, if you listen to vinyl and it would get a scratch in it and then it would just keep repeating itself over and over and over and over in that same annoying spot. You've heard that line of the song so many times you're ready to throw it out the window. And that's kind of what's going on with these religious leaders. They keep coming to Jesus trying to accuse him and they fail miserably every time. And so see the pattern. Watch the progression of these unbelievers as they insist that Jesus give them a sign, but it's in unbelief. And so they reject it when it comes. Look at verse 11. In disbelief, they want a sign. The Pharisees came to him and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Notice that the text specifically says they wanted this sign to test him. They didn't want a sign so that they could believe. They didn't genuinely want to see Christ at work so that they could see the grace of God in their own lives. Their goal was to discredit Jesus. Their goal was to disprove his authenticity, that he isn't who he says he is. And we see in the text that when it came, they were arguing with him. Look at verse 12. In their unbelief, they grieved the Lord. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, for the second time in 16 verses, we saw this last week as well. For the second time in 16 verses, Jesus sighs or moans with deep emotion. Last time, if you remember, it was with this blind man who was also mute. And Jesus sighs, moans with deep emotion because he sees in this blind man the cost of his physical healing, but also the cost for our spiritual healing, that he will go to a cross and suffer, suffer separation from God, taking on the wrath of the world that gives him the ability to not only heal us uh, physically as he did for this deaf and mute gentleman, but also spiritually. Here, his deep sigh, his moan, is over the fact that these minds were refusing to believe the evidence that was before them. That these eyes were, were not seeing, these ears were not hearing all that Christ had done. And so in this, in this he's saying to them, if you want a sign, you, you want a sign, go read the scriptures. Go look at your Old Testament. Go see that what it says in the Old Testament, I'm actually doing. Isaiah 35, 5. Those things are coming to pass in me. 
Listen to the word. Heed the word of Scripture. See what I'm doing and believe. That's the sign that you'll be given. If you can't see what God's doing through me, then there's no evidence that will soften your hearts and cause you to believe. Jesus was making it clear that if their desire was just for a sign, that it was an expression of their unbelief. That their desire to see some miracle was just entertainment value. They should see the word of God and see him as the word of God. The word being fulfilled in his actions and in his words. Church family, if we want a sign, I feel like so many people, I would believe. I I don't have faith, but I would believe if I could just see a sign. If God would give me a sign. He has. It's his word. He's given you his inspired and errant word. See Christ in the scriptures and believe. That's what he's given us. Look at verse 13. And you continue this progression. They they desire a sign. Uh, They grieve the Lord. And then 13, their unbelief caused them to lose the Lord. It says in verse 13, and he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. Friends, it doesn't get much simpler, clearer, or depressing than this statement. This short little verse, it's a sign of divine judgment. It's a sign of the judgment that Jesus was bringing to them, that he leaves them. Physically, they're standing right in front of him. They're, they're more close to Christ than they've ever been. Physically, they're right in front of him. But spiritually, they couldn't have been farther away. They lost him. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that in, in, a, in a short time, they will indeed murder him. So we see in the text that unbelief, not believing, is sin and it's evil and it's a tragedy. And unbelief says no, even when the gospel is right before them. Unbelief says no, even when the signs are right in front of their nose. The text says, and he left them. He left them. I couldn't think of sadder words to hear than those words. That Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, the one who created all things by his word, he left them. Is it possible this morning that there are some in the room that, have been, that God's been dealing with? You've heard the gospel. You've maybe sat in this room or you've had a friend share the gospel with you and it's been presented clearly and you've heard the claims of Christ. You've heard that Jesus Christ was, was, was killed, was nailed to a cross because he was bearing your wrath, taking your sin, and he rose from the dead, proving that he was indeed God and that he has conquered death. You've heard that truth. You've heard it and you've refused to believe. It could be that there are some this morning that are are physically closer to the gospel. They've heard the gospel clearly and they're this close and yet their hearts are far away. It says he left them. Friends, I'm not trying to scare you or twist your arm or, or, or scare you to the point that you would make a decision. But friends, you need to know the reality is this. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not, you're not promised that you'll get to, get to walk out of these doors. And the reality is that in that moment when our heart stops and our lungs breathe their last breath of air, in that moment, eternity will begin for us. It says that he left them. Don't hesitate. You are this close to the gospel. You are hearing the word of God. Don't harden your heart in unbelief. Don't hesitate today. Third point we see about sight. Sometimes... Even believers, even followers of Jesus, see the work of God but miss the point. Sometimes, even followers of Jesus see the work of God but miss the meaning, the point. You see this in verses 14 through 21. Now, it'd be easy for us to come down on the Pharisees, right? To to come down on the Pharisees for being unwilling to see, unwilling to believe who Jesus is, and he was right in front of their face the whole time doing ministry right in front of them. 
And to be clear, church family, we must call that sin. Unbelief is sin. So there's a sense in which, yes, we do come down on the Pharisees and say, you had it right before your eyes and you still did not believe. That's sin. That's evil. But the religious elite were not the only ones to miss what Jesus was saying, what Jesus was doing. The disciples, too, proved that they were not always understanding. The difference, though, before we even read the text, the difference, though, Unlike the unbelieving Pharisees, the disciples had surrendered all that they knew of themselves to Jesus. Even though they were unclear on what he was doing, they were making progress in Christ and in the truth of who he is. Even if painfully slow, they were believing. The more that they understood, the more that they believed. The more they received, the more they trusted. They still had a ways to go, which is what we see in verses 14 through 21. But hey, so do we, right? We're not there yet. That's why this is important for us. We've not arrived. We're not fully there, and there's more that we can taste of Christ. There's more that we can see in Christ, and so we need to lean into this. That's why this is important for us. Look at verses 14 through 16. We see that they didn't understand his words. They didn't understand what he was saying. Look at verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So, so first of all, I, I read this and I'm like, are you kidding me? You forgot bread? Like all you guys, 12 of you guys, and, and no one remembered bread, even after Jesus had just multiplied bread and you had seven like uh, laundry baskets full of bread, no one grabbed one for the boat ride, right? Like I don't even understand how that happens. Uh, but before we get any further, they are also thinking the same thing. And so they begin to cast blame. Uh, whose fault it was. Man, you were holding the basket. You should have brought the bread. Oh, you were holding one too. Why didn't you bring your basket? And so they have this, this, this debate going on on whose fault it was they didn't have bread. The whole time, the irony of all of this, the whole time failing to see that Jesus, the one who is the bread of life, the one who they've now watched multiply bread on two occasions, was in the boat with them. That, that's the irony of the text is that they're having this debate over bread and he's sitting right next to them. And so often, like Jesus does, he uses this situation and, and, and their forgetfulness to teach them a lesson. And it says this in the text. He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So in other words, a small lump of leaven will spread throughout the whole lump of bread. The little bit of leaven will, 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 will take over the whole. And that's what had been happening with the Pharisees and the Herodians. This, this seed of unbelief, this little bit of unbelief had so gripped them that now, even though the evidence was right in front of them, they had seen it over and over and over. The truth was standing right before their eyes. They wouldn't believe. And that's what Jesus is saying. Watch out. Don't be like that. Don't let unbelief and doubt even have a foothold or an ounce, an inch of foothold in your life. Beware of that. Don't let it cause you to, to disbelieve who I am and what I came for. And they don't get it. Verse 16, it shows that immediately they begin debating again the fact they have no bread. I mean, Jesus is talking about the most pressing issues, the most pressing matter a man or woman could ever talk about, literally eternal life and death, and they'd rather debate over bread. They missed his words. They missed the meaning. They missed what he was trying to communicate. So, verse 17 to 21, they indicate that they don't understand his works. They've already showed us they didn't understand his words. Now watch this in verse 17 through 21. They miss his work, what he's doing. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, yet perceive or understand? 
Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did we take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not understand yet? In this, in this moment, we should immediately see, as we read these verses, there's a Q&A going on here. Jesus is questioning the disciples to get them to understand his work, what he's doing. And we know that this is instructive. This is meant to convict. It's meant to show them where they're at. It's presented like rapid-fire probing questions. Uh, Jesus didn't play the psychiatrist here. He didn't, well, just, just lay down on my soft, plush sofa, and I'm going to have my notepad, and I want to ask you some questions. Now, now, how does that make you feel? Ah, and what do you perceive as being your greatest fear? Ah, can you tell me more about that? Ah, I understand. How does that make you feel? No, Jesus, Jesus he, he's not doing that. He goes straight to the heart of the issue with nine questions that identify their, uh, their blindness. Verse 17, are, are you dis- why are you discussing this lack of bread? Uh, well, verse 17 again, do, do you not understand or comprehend? Well, I, I guess not. Uh, are your hearts hardened? Uh, yes. Uh, do you have eyes and not see? Yes, again. Do you have ears and not hear? Well, I guess so. Do you not remember? I guess we don't. When I fed the 5,000s, how many baskets did you collect? Twelve. And when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets did you collect? Uh, seven. Don't you understand then? Well, I guess we don't. He's probing their hearts. He's getting them to see his work and what he's been doing. They've heard his teaching. So here's the, here's the, here's the, 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 the issue, church family. They, they saw him working. They saw him teaching, and they were slow to understand and believe. And Jesus is making it clear to them that their issue in this boat and why they're debating bread is because they have a hardness of heart. They were not hardened to him. Again, remember, these are his followers. They've surrendered their lives to following him. Their hardness of heart is not toward Christ. Their hardness of heart is, is an issue of familiarity. They had heard him teaching. They had been exposed to his teaching so much without reflecting upon it, without, without acting upon it, that it had produced a dullness in their lives. They had saw his miracles so often without thinking and reflecting and meditating on it, without acting upon it, that it had produced a dullness in their hearts. We do this too. Our familiarity with the claims of Christ, with the demands of the gospel, if not acted upon, if not meditated on and reflected upon, it can produce a dullness in us. We see the Lord's provision in our lives, and, and, we, and if we fail to fully understand and, and see him at work, it can produce that dullness. We don't recognize him. My grandfather, I told this story at our senior adult luncheon on Thursday. My grandfather was a country boy. He would rather be in the woods than anywhere else in the world. And he absolutely hated the idea of being in crowds. He did not want to be in public. He did not want to be around groups of people. It just made him incredibly nervous. But on this one occasion, we, we got him to come out. I think it was a graduation dinner or, or a birthday dinner or something like that. The whole family was there. <clears throat> and we went to this dinner, this restaurant on a lake. It was built on piers actually out in the lake. Beautiful setting. Uh, glass. All, all the walls were glass so that you could see out on the lake and see the sunset. It was a beautiful occasion. And my grandfather on this particular night had forgotten his glasses. He didn't see too well. And uh, we're sitting there, and halfway through dinner, he decides that he needs to go to the restroom, and so he excuses himself from the table. And as he's making his way to the restroom, and again, 
incredibly nervous because he hates crowds. He had forgotten his glasses, so he's not seeing too well. And he's making his way to the restroom, and he slams into one of these huge, height-tall glass windows. And in, in that moment, he saw his own silhouette and reflection in the glass. And in front of everyone, a whole restaurant full of people, he begins apologizing to his reflection. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't see you there. I'm so sorry. And, and, and we're looking at this whole situation just, just dying laughing because it, it is, it's, it's so him. And, and, and I thought of that picture of my grandfather running into the glass and then apologizing to his own reflection. And I thought, you know, that has to be how Jesus sees us sometimes. That, 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 we, that in the midst of life, in the midst of trials, in the midst of things, the thing that we should most recognize, the, the reflection that we should most see, Christ, Jesus, our, our God, we often miss. We don't even see it. We've become so familiar with it, we don't even recognize him at work. And then, and then, and then sadly, too often, it's, it's us. We think it's us. We see that reflection and we think that we're the one. Well, that was my work ethic. That was hard work that, that, that earned that for me. Uh, it, was, it was good stewarding that, that allowed me to save money and resources and, 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 and earn these things. It was him. It was him at work the whole time. We're left bumbling through life because we're not recognizing that face, that one at work who should be most familiar to us. The God who's a mover in all of the things that we do. Fourth point that we see, our fourth observation about sight in the text, is that often sight is given by Jesus, but clarity comes slowly. Often sight is given by Jesus, but clarity comes slowly. You see this in verses 22 through 26. And before we read these verses again, let me give you a tip to listen for as we're reading. Uh, Mark is intentionally sandwiching this story here. He's intentionally uh, setting this story here in the midst of what we've been discussing because it's a physical picture. Jesus used it as a physical picture to show the disciples where they were at with spiritual sight, on this spiritual journey that he has them on. And so as we read this, listen for how this miracle story, this physical healing, mirrors where the disciples are spiritually. Look at verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Though this is historically true, it actually happened in history. It also serves as a parable for us. Jesus is intentionally using this miracle, this story, uh, to show the disciples where they're at spiritually. Now think about this. Jesus could have healed this man instantly. With a simple touch or a simple verbal command, he could have healed him completely on the first attempt. Again, like the, the, the dead girl that he raises Jairus' daughter. He simply touches her and speaks to her, and she comes back from being dead. So when he doesn't do it in the most simple way possible, like last week even with the deaf and mute gentleman, we must ask why. Why would he do this differently? Why did he do this in stages? And here he uses these steps to heal this man because it's a teaching tool. This blind man, like the disciples, is slowly coming to sight, in this man's case, physically, to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet, even with Peter's confession next week, even with Peter saying, you are the Christ, he doesn't fully see it. The disciples don't fully see it until they see the cross and resurrection. And then it's clear. 
Everything we've been told, it's clear now. And so he's showing them this transition, this journey that they're on spiritually. So let's see it in the text. Verse 22, they bring the needy man to Jesus. The disciples dock their boat on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're immediately met by a group of people that want this blind man to be healed. And they believe Jesus can do it. This is not uncommon. Every time Jesus docks his boat, he's met with people. So this is not new for us. They believe that if they can get their friend to Jesus, that he can change his life. I read that, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just seeing in the text that their belief, it wasn't theoretical, but it was practical. That real belief led to real action. I wonder if we're like that. Do we have that kind of confidence in Jesus? If we can just get our friends to Jesus, he would change their lives. If we could just get our friends before Christ, he would change them. Well, yeah, I believe that, Matt. Well, how is it reflected in the way that we're inviting our friends to church? How, does it, how is it reflected in the way that we're communicating the gospel to our, our neighbor or our coworker that sits across from us at our desk? That, that demonstrates if we really believe that or not. These men believed it. They brought their friend to Jesus because they had confidence that Jesus could change him. He was his only hope. So in love, Jesus gives sight to this blind man to teach us about spiritual sight. Look at verses 23 through 26. Uh, Jesus' tender care here, his concern for this man, should remind us of the, the deaf and mute gentleman last week. He takes him by the hand. He takes him by the hand. Again, picture this. The God of the universe taking this blind man by the hand and gently leading him around barriers and obstacles and steps, speaking to him verbal commands. Watch, watch out, there's a hole here. Watch out, there's a step here. Move this way. Uh, catching him when he stumbles. This is the, this is the God of the universe taking this man by the hand and loving him gently and leading him out for privacy. Again, you're not going to be a spectacle today. You're not going to be, you're not going to be something to be gawked at today. So he leads him out. It's time for him and Jesus. He spits on his eyes. Again, in two weeks, last week and this week, we've seen Jesus doing something with saliva. He spits in, in the process of working this miracle. And so again, I apologize to you moms if your kids go and try to reenact this and you're like trying to stay away from the flu. He says, do you see anything? He asks him, do you see anything? In every one of these actions, this man is slowly coming to gain trust and faith in Jesus' character and love for him. We could say more about the actions here and what each one of these actions does. But again, I want to point us to this last question. Do you see anything? Do you see anything? Jesus asked this question uh, for the disciples' sake. Again, because he already knew the answer. He knew that the man had not experienced complete healing yet. Why? Because he's the healer. He's the one that performed the miracle. He knew that he wasn't fully seeing yet. He's not surprised by this news. And then the man responds, I see people, but they look like trees walking. This man essentially says, yeah, I see some. I see more than I've ever seen before, but I still don't see clearly. So there's a couple ways we can understand this. One, as skeptics would, well, maybe Jesus had some power to do miracles, but it's wearing off. He's not able to do a fully good job on this miracle. It's kind of a shoddy job, and so he halfway restores this man's sight. So he's got to do a do-over or something. Or, rightly, Jesus did this on purpose to teach us something about the nature of real sight, spiritual sight. So you can imagine this blind man's faith. Again, remember, it was his friends that brought him to Jesus. To this point in the story, this man's been completely passive. We don't know that he believed anything. His friends are bringing him to Jesus. Now, he's not like Bar blind Bartimaeus. You remember that story? Blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Even in his, his request for help, he's acknowledging that he's the Messiah. Not this guy. He's just here. Sure, if it works, it works. We'll give it a shot. And now, 
Jesus has taken him by the hand, graciously loved him, gently cared for him, and then he gives him some sight. So now for the first time he's seeing color, he's seeing shapes. Not perfectly, but he can see something. So you can imagine how this man went from possibly no belief in Jesus to now overwhelming belief in Jesus in just a few small moments because he went from non-existent sight to some sight. His faith in Jesus has just increased a hundredfold. Overwhelming trust. And we know that to be the case because continue reading. We see what Jesus does. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again. And he opened his eyes. And his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Ferguson in his commentary on this text says this. It's a great quote to help us see the significance. He says this. What is the significance of this? What was it that, what was it that this man was... Uh, was it that this man was a particularly difficult case for Jesus? No, absolutely not. Was this miracle then, like others, a sign, a teaching? Absolutely yes. But to whom? The man? No, to the disciples. And this was confirmed by the fact that Jesus had already asked them about their vision of him in verse 18. Now he's leading them, the disciples, by the hand to the point at which their sight would become much clearer. And Peter would confess, you are the Christ in verse 29. Their spiritual understanding did not come instantaneously, but gradually. They, too, needed a second touch from the master's hands. Church family, we're there. If it was true of this man's physical sight, if it was true for the disciples and their spiritual sight, and they're getting to live every day with Jesus physically, then church, it's, it's true for us, too. We may see, we may have been given eyes to see, and we believe that Jesus is the Christ, but we need him to give us clarity. We need him daily to give us discernment to see him at work in our lives. Even our acknowledgement of him at work in our lives is his grace. And that's sanctification, that, that he would slowly transform us into the image of his son. That day by day, we've seen the cross and resurrection. We've seen who he is. But he's slowly transforming us, slowly giving us more and more clarity to see him for who he is. That's what the gospel does in our lives. The gospel doesn't just get us saved. The gospel makes us like Jesus. And see that process in your own life. So there's two questions I'll end with. One, do you see? We've been talking a lot about sight this morning in the text. Have you seen Christ? Has he revealed to you that he is the Son of God that has come to die and take away your sins? If you've never seen, I pray that today would be that day that you would make that decision to follow Christ. And second, if you are seeing him, does your life look like him? In the compassion that he had towards this multitude, in the loving kindness and gentleness that he showed this blind man, does that kind of action characterize your life? Real belief leads to real action, church family. Let's be those kind of folks. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. That you've not left us guessing about spiritual things, that you've not left us clueless, but you have given us your word whereby we can know you. Help us to see Christ this morning. Give every person in this room eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that will understand. We give you this time of response and pray that you would deal with each one of us, do work in our hearts. That, God, you would, you would make us see clearly more and more every day with clarity the Son of God, the gospel that saves us and makes us like Jesus. So we give you this time. Use this response time to work in our hearts. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.